But now, as we get into the meat of this episode, we'll start with the Ukraine war. Ukraine. Hey, you guys remember Ukraine? Come on, guys. Don't. It's me, Ukraine. Everybody knows Ukraine, you know. I stand with Ukraine. Ghost of Kiev. Yeah, me. I, you know. What? <laughs> Man, did they just fall completely out of the news cycle. So conveniently, too. I mean, it's not like they were losing or anything. It was, it's not like their counteroffensive failed really badly. Oh, look, there's a new war. No, no, don't, you don't need to look at that. But, you know, we will because, you know, these things go on. And it's kind of my job as a hobby to do these things. Plus, I am very interested in what the outcome of this war is going to be. So, of course, I'm going to cover it. Although, I'll be honest, I am also happy to be able to take a break from talking about the Ukraine war. I swear, we, we talk about basically every week. Any for like months, like months, 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 and well, actually, quite, quite frankly, over a year. So yeah, it's nice to get a good break from Ukraine, but it's too consequential to just leave alone just because the news doesn't feel like talking about it. Because they will talk about it again next year, uh, and it's not going to be very good news either. But we'll start with Shoigu, Sergei Shoigu, the Russian defense minister saying that Russia has downed 24 Ukrainian aircraft in one week. If that's true, that is a terrifying loss for Ukraine. Because it's not like there's uh, the United States, China, Russia, where they have where they have hundreds of aircraft to draw upon. No, they have one to 200. Like that, that's the size of a normal air force, like one to 250. So you're talking about losing a major, major, major percentage of your Air Force in a single week on top of whatever losses you had over the course of the war. That's really bad. Like, it's one thing to lose hundreds of armored vehicles and hundreds of tanks in your counteroffensive. It's another thing to, to go losing planes like this, especially when you're not being given planes at anywhere near the same rate that you're being given these armored vehicles and tanks and other things. These are even more irreplaceable than the ground equipment that they lost. And with the Ukrainian Air Force getting uh, obliterated like this, like assuming that this is true, right? And assuming that this is true, Ukraine's Air Force is dying. And, and that's on top of the massive losses they took at the beginning of the war, where the Russians straight up bombed their, their airstrips. The, their air power has never recovered from so I just can't imagine that with losses like these, uh, assuming that this is true, I can't imagine that with losses like these, that the Ukrainian Air Force is going to be f a functioning fighting force. I can't imagine that it's even going to be functionally present in the battle space come 2024, certainly come the backbreaker offense in spring, summer of 2024. When the Russians go on the offensive, like a real offensive. And my goodness, you combine no air force with no air defenses because they're blowing through air defense missiles. We, and the Russians just keep spamming them with missiles, ballistic missiles to get them to use up their air defense missiles. Well, when the Russian air force does come out in force and they're already trickling out because Ukraine's air defense has been 
ground down enough for the Russian Air Force to do lim limited operations. They have to stay close to the Russian line so they don't get shot. But the Russian Air Force is now more present than it was for like oh, the whole year. Like I kept asking, where's the Russian Air Force? Where's the Russian Air Force? Where's the Russian Air Force? Oh, it's because Ukraine's air defenses were really good. Probably because it was based off of Russian air defenses themselves. And the Russians are very well aware of what their own systems are capable of doing, even Soviet era systems. So they weren't just going to send their own planes into that nightmare. They're afraid of their own equipment. And yet we don't respect it enough to treat it with the dignity of not saying stupid things like, oh, if we just give Ukraine two F-16s, that's going to turn the tide of the war. Two? They, according to this report, they just lost 24. What, what would two F-16s have done? Like, what would that have done? It's nothing. You're going to put them up in the sky. They don't know how to fly them. Not really. They haven't been trained to the fullest degree that they should have been. They're going to go up and they're going to get lit up by Russian air defenses. And then they're going to die. That's all that's going to happen here. Two more casualties is all that's going to be achieved by giving them two F-16s. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's silly. It's silly. But we also have a, another report. Uh, well, uh, some reports, uh, I myself can't necessarily confirm or deny this, but again, like the report that 24 Ukrainian aircraft got shot in a week, if this one is true, then it's another really bad side for Ukraine. Because this, these reports are suggesting that in certain parts of the line, Russia is advancing by 500 meters a day. Now, obviously, this isn't the entire front line. Otherwise, Russia would be uh, well on their way to Kiev. So. This is probably very, uh, they're probably taking the highest metric for very specific zones of the front where the Russians are just making really rapid advances. But my goodness, 500 meters a day, that's, uh, pardon my, uh, pardon my math here. But if I'm not mistaken, a kilometer is a thousand meters. So if a kilometer is a thousand meters and they're moving 500 meters a day, that means they're going a whole kilometer every two days, if I'm not mistaken. If I ain't mistaken. So that's a, shoot, that's some really good progress in a war like this where you're fighting tooth and nail for every inch of land you can take. But if they're making gains like that, it hints at the deterioration of the Ukrainian defenses. Like, cause before it was, the front lines really haven't moved much until Russia started with their, you know, their gradual offensive across the entire line over the course of this summer, parallel to Ukraine's great counteroffensive, which didn't really do much. The lines have only, haven't moved this much since the beginning of the war, but now they're moving. And in some parts, if these reports are true, in some parts, by as much as a kilometer every two days. So, very ominous signs for the Ukrainian fighting force. Again, because if Russia is able to make advances like that in parts of the front, that means Ukraine does not have men there or a sufficient number of men in those parts of the front to hold Russia back. 
So they have to fall back. That means you have to redeploy troops from other parts of the line to cover the gaps. Now you're going to open up new gaps to be exploited elsewhere. And every time this happens, you're gonna, you're losing men. You're you're gonna get shot. You're gonna people are gonna die. And it's just at some point the bubble bursts. Right. It's like it's like when you're able to touch a bubble and you're able to press down on it. You're able to play with it a little bit. Uh, but eventually the bubble pops if you put too much pressure on it. And that's it's looking like we're getting dangerously close to that point in time if the Russians are able to start poking and prodding at a, a soft Ukrainian line. If the Ukrainian line is that soft that they can be pushed and nudged like that at various points along the entire front, then at some point you're going to pop. You can't maintain that forever. And you certainly can't keep giving up ground, especially when the ground further to your west is flat and wide open. It's only going to get easier for the Russians from here. Like, if you can't dig in and stop them now, it's only going to be easier. And I think that that's what we're going to be looking at sometime next year. We have also, we have various claims from the pro-Russian side uh, claiming that Russia is taking terrible losses in their offensive operation. And they're looking namely at the offensive operations around the city of Abdiivka. Uh, yeah, they're claiming that Russia, I saw one report saying that Russia had lost like 6,000 men in, in a week since they undertook this uh, offensive round of Diyevka. Now, given the propensity for pro-Ukrainian outlets to straight up lie, <laughs> like, like not even mislead, not even, oh, we got it wrong, but to straight up lie to our face about the Russian losses, uh, you know, <laughs> Russia losing half of its forces, <laughs> half of its combat op ability, half R Russia fighting with toilets and shovels. <laughs> oh, don't you remember how the Wagner coup was going to overthrow Putin and and then and then and then it didn't happen? Don't you remember how the Russians? How, how don't you remember how Bakhmut was Ukraine putting Russia into a trap and how Russia lost hundreds of thousands of men in Bakhmut? For a, a minimal number of losses for Ukraine, don't you? You remember how they just flipped the, flipped the script and just lie to us like that? So, so crazy. And then you get the actual reports later on, on the down low, saying that the Russian losses, saying that Russian losses were at 20, not even like 24,000 dead. Well, a little bit over 24,000 dead in June of this year. 14,000 back in February of this year, 2023. So let's say that it, let, let's get, even if we give that to them, right? Even if we give them the 6,000, just not to account for this attack, but to account for the entire summer. Let's just say it was really, really bad and Ukraine was giving them hell in their counteroffensive. Even if we give them that 6,000, and call it all deaths, not casualties, all deaths. That puts Russia up to 30,000 deaths. That's what it puts them at, 30,000 deaths. So for the Russians who expect 25% fatalities for their casualties, 
you can multiply that by four to get their casualty number. 120,000 casualties? In exchange for a confirmed 300,000 dead Ukrainians? Likely a lot more now because we got that obituary number from back in, what, August? Confirmed 300,000 Ukrainians versus uh, uh, confirmed kills. 300,000 dead Ukrainians versus 120-something thousand Russian casualties? Even if we give them this 6,000, like hell, let's double it. Let's give them 12,000, right? Like, let, let, let's say they lost 6,000 specifically around Evdivka, and the other 6,000 was from over the course of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. It was, they just really messed them up this time. All right, well, that's 36,000. 36,000 times two is what, 72,000? 72,000, and you multiply that by two again, 144,000 casualties. The numbers, no matter how we try to slice this up, just don't add up for Ukraine. It, they just don't, the numbers do not add up to a Ukrainian victory. They don't, and they honestly never have. But as we start approaching the, the slip and slide to destruction here for Ukraine, it every number we get, it just becomes more and more painfully obvious that they're not going to win. 6,000. And that's just one report. And we know that they lie. We know that they lie about the reports. They, we, oh my, like there was a report uh, a couple months ago when they were comparing the losses saying that the Russians had taken 300,000 casualties and that the Ukrainians had only taken around 200,000 casualties, but that the Russian death rates were higher at around 50% and that Ukrainian death rates were deaths were only like 70, 80,000 and the Russians were at double that in terms of deaths, literally flipping the script and just straightforwardly lying to you. When the Ukrainians have had higher fatality rates the entire war and higher casualties in total than the Russians have. So when you hear these talk, the talk of oh, Russia taking massive losses, we have no choice but to take that with a massive dose of salt because these people lie. And they love, they really like lying for Ukraine. And I, I take it with a grain of salt. But maybe it's true. But even if it is true, I mean, we just ran through the numbers together. Even if it is true, it's still not going to add up to Ukrainian victory. You're still going to lose. Even if we gave them 12,000 instead of just 6,000, even if we give them 12,000, the casualties for the Russians are still half of what we can confirm Ukraine has in deaths. And Ukrainian deaths have always made up half of their casualties. So 300,000 confirmed kills means 600,000 casualties. And you have people like Colonel McGregor who have now given another updated figure saying that half a million Ukrainians are dead. Half a million dead. That means that we are at or approaching the 1 million casualty mark 
These numbers do not add up to Ukrainian victory at all. And yet we have people just straight up lying, even, even now, straight up lying about Ukraine winning the war, how Russia's taking these losses, even though Ukraine is just fighting so valiantly, so bravely, but you have a million casualties? And the Russians have, uh, at this rate, they're going to have a tenth of that? You're not even going to have a, a five to one, you're going to have a, a nine, ten to one? In Russia's favor? And we're supposedly winning? You're conscripting women to go to the front lines. Because you've run out of men. And you're winning? No. They're losing. And they're losing badly. And with all the attention now shifting to Israel-Palestine, no one is talking about a ceasefire for Russia and Ukraine anymore. That ship has sailed. And, and I've just realized this talking about it. That ship has sailed now. Because now all of America's attention is going to be on Israel-Palestine. The international community has already shifted focus away from Ukraine to Israel-Palestine. And the fact that the, the fighting in uh, Ukraine is going to be in a bit of a lull right now because they're going into winter is only going to further that along because Israel is getting ready for a ground offensive into Gaza. It's going to heat up. Israel is going to take up the entire news cycle. Israel-Palestine is going to take the entire attention of the international community. No one's even looking at Ukraine anymore, meaning that no one is going to be there to extend that hand of a negotiated ceasefire. Even if Ukraine came around and said, you know what, we're ready for negotiations. We're ready to give up territory in exchange for peace. We're not going to do NATO. We're not gonna, we, we, we want peace. We want peace. Even if they did that right now, who's going to pick up that phone call? Who's going to pick up that phone call? Because after the, the peace summit in Arabia, Ukraine says they don't want peace. They're not interested in peace talks anymore. So, okay, you're not interested in peace talks. You're not giving any proposals that the Russians are interested in. So we'll just focus on Israel-Palestine now. And we'll just, we'll just focus on Israel-Palestine, and you can fight it out. No one's going to give Ukraine that off-ramp anymore. Meaning that they are all alone fighting the get against the Russians. And America, their principal supplier of good, of military supplies, is shifting gears to Israel as well. They have to share... They have to share their supply dumps of ammunition that they need desperately. Like they can't win this war without American materiel, but the material we're already giving them, mind you, but now they're having to share that with Israel. And well, what about Europe? Surely Europe's gonna come and fill the gap. No, the Europeans can't even fill their own gap. They pro remember when they promised to give a million shells to Ukraine over the course of a year? You remember when Zelensky was going to the EU asking for 250,000 shells a month? <laughs> and they came back to him and said, hey, how does a million shells in one year sound? Which, if you do the math, is literally one-third of what he asked for, because 250,000 times four is a million. So 250,000 a month times four, that's a million every four months, 12 months in a year. He was actually asking for 3 million shells. And they said, 
we'll give you one million. How does that sound? But here we are. We're rapidly approaching March again. It, it seems far away, but what? It's it's October now, almost Halloween. You have we're going into November. So November, December, January, February. We're about to be in March. March is we're we're past the halfway mark for March. They have six months left. Well, not even. They have like five months left before we get to March, the end of March. And as of now, it's uh, the, Europe has apparently over only delivered about 30% of the artillery shells that they promised Ukraine back in March. 30% after almost seven full months. 30%. Not even a full third. 30%. So... Ukraine asked for 3 million shells within a year. They promised 1 million shells in a year. And as of now, it's looking like Ukraine's going to walk away with 300,000 shells. Maybe maybe 4 or 500,000. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, there's still time, but it's not like the Europeans have any artillery production going on. And the Europeans aren't going to do it. And America is no longer giving you your the sole attention. That means Ukraine cannot go on with the war. Like, it, it was... They were already in a losing war of attrition because Russian production was just outpacing us. And we were exhausting our supplies of weapons faster than we could supply it to Ukraine anyway. But now that we're not even giving them as much as we were before, and again, that by itself would be a good thing if we weren't trying to give it to Israel. But now that our, we're cutting back supplies on Ukraine, that means that the attrition goes faster. Ukraine gets ground down faster because they have less and less to work with. Uh, it's... The numbers just really don't add up to Ukrainian victory. They really don't. And now we have Russia advancing around the town of Avdiivka. And they're about to do to that town what they did to Bakhmut. Like, I, I saw a, a war map that was published by the Institute for the Study of War. Uh, this was showing the battle around Avdiivka, uh, as well as the front line as a whole, because it, there were two separate maps. I'll probably put them up on the Twitter uh, sometime eventually. Yeah, I, I like I have them ready on. I'll, I'll put them up on the, on the Twitter. So be sure to follow me at HW Geopolitics on X. <laughs> but yeah, you can see on these maps that if they're accurate, if they're accurate and you know, like down to a T, right? Because there's obviously going to be, uh, there's obviously going to be room to maneuver and you know margins of error especially when you're dealing with an active front line but if that map is relatively accurate then we can uh, we can look at it and see that russia has taken multiple times more land than ukraine managed to secure in their four month long offensive russia in, in four months of ukrainian counteroffensive russia has taken multiple times more land than ukraine took like you can see in the light blue where Ukraine had their offensive gains, and then you see in the pink slash light red where Russia has had their gains in their offensive, 
Russia's gains are across the entire front line. Ukraine's gains are in like one tiny little nub, little nub in the front line. And the Russians are just swallowing all of Ukraine whole, meanwhile. And when you look at it, you can see that the Russians have taken like multiple times more land than Ukraine did. But no one's talking about the Russian offensive except for the Duran. No one's talking about it. It's, it's not flashy. It's slow and grinding. But that's what Russia's been up to. And they've been doing this while Ukraine was fighting their offensive. Russia's been defending against them and counterattacking across the entire line. And winning on both fronts, the defensive and the offensive. And now you have this situation where the Russians have taken more land than Ukraine did. And they're already rolling back those gains. I mean, meanwhile, Ukraine has been bashing their head in against Bakhmut, trying to get it back, trying to get back into the city, which they just can't do because the Russians have solidified the line. And they're just dying for Bakhmut. Like, I, it's, I don't know why. I don't know why. Like, even if they took Bakhmut, what would taking Bakhmut at this point do for you? Like, whatever defensive structure that you had that Bakhmut was, like, a key hub for, like, sh defensive structures and logistical structures, whatever Bakhmut was the hub for, it's already been lost. And all the surrounding territory has also been lost to Russia, meaning... Whatever strategic value there was to Bakhmut has been nullified, even if you take the city back by it, because by itself, you need the surrounding land. You'd just be putting yourself back into a fire trap for the Russians to grind you down again. You already lost nearly 100,000 men in the first battle of Bakhmut. Why are you still trying to take back this city? And why are you not trying to, I don't know, go around it? No, because you can't. Defense, Russia has defense in depth, and the Russians have kept their lines relatively smooth. Like, they haven't had large protrusions where they can be attacked from multiple angles and multiple sides and outflanked. They've been on a slow and consistent march across the breadth and width of Ukraine so that they can't be outflanked. Slow and methodical. And in the face of that, why are you trying to challenge them in a city where they already stole a hundred thousand men in terms of losses? You're going to attack into this same city where you were able to hold on to for months, and you're you expect the Russians, who had the superiority of numbers and firepower, to force you out. You're going to expect that they aren't going to have those same advantages except bigger advantages now because they have superior firepower to you? What are you expecting to gain? I, I don't get it. I At this point, I think the Ukrainians are just doing shit for the sake of doing shit because there is nothing to be gained from doing that. There's nothing to be gained from doing that. And while they've been bashing their head in against Bakhmut, Russia's been putting Avdiivka into a cauldron, uh, which is uh, a, it's a term which, if I have to describe it, it's just a, a really, really big fire trap like you can see it on a map type fire trap instead of just, oh, you walked into the line of sight of multiple machine gun nests.
you know, uh, the strategic equivalent of that, a big, uh, yeah, you, you captured this town, but all the hills surrounding the town have artillery on them. So you've walked into a fire trap and you can see it on a map. So that's what a cauldron is. And they've put the entire town of Avdivka into a cauldron by advancing not into Avdivka, but around Avdivka. And you can see it on the map that the uh, Institute for the Study of War put up that the Russians have basically, uh, just like with Bakhmut, right? Because when the Ukrainians were holding on to Bakhmut, Russia knew that it was going to be a struggle to get into Bakhmut. So what they did was they just advanced around it again in a solid line. So if you have, you, you put your, uh, take your hands, make some fists, right? Turn them so that you, the, the top of your hands are facing you. And then you put your fists together where your the knuckles for your thumbs meet. And that little gap between your fists, that's the salient, that's the cauldron. And then your knuckles for your other fingers, that's the front line, right? So you just take your hands from your fists, put them together. Like you're about to give a fist bump to somebody, put your your knuckles together, boom. Right. No, maybe I'm not describing that accurately, but yeah, some of you'll get it. Some of you, <laughs> some of you'll get it. But yeah, like you're about to get arrested. There you go. Put put your hands out. Form your fist. Put your hands out like you're about to get arrested. Keep your the knuckles for your thumbs together. And you see that gap? That's where Avdiivka is. And your knuckles for your other fingers, that's where the front line is, right? That's what Russia's done in Avdiivka. Again, just like what they did with Bakhmut. They put them in the cauldron. And now everyone in there has the choice stay and get bombed or flee and give up the ground to the russians now obviously one of those is a better option than the other but are they going to take that option no they're going to stay and they're going to get bombed and uh, you can say that it, yeah they have to defend their land but if you keep taking losses like they cannot afford another back I'm sorry, they, they can't afford another Bakhmut. They can't afford to sit there and lose another 80, 90,000 plus men in a single battle just to lose. Like they, they're already being pressed on the entire front. You can't afford to be losing that, that kind of manpower at this moment in time where the Russians are putting pressure on the bubble from multiple angles. If you do that and you lose and Avdiivka, the bubble will pop and it'll be a lot easier. It's, but this is where Ukraine is. And you can clearly see it on the, the maps now. Russia is just putting city after city into cauldrons and then bombing everything inside with artillery fire. It, it is very toxic. <laughs> yes, it is. But it's winning the war for Russia and they have no reason to stop. And it's... It's just like I said, like I've been saying throughout this entire segment, the, the math, the numbers just are not adding up to Ukrainian victory. The, those shells that Ukraine was promised by the EU, those are clearly not going to materialize anytime soon. And now their principal donor, the United States, uh, is uh, the principal donor of war materials, is splitting its resources to manage two wars at once. And... Honestly, at this point, the only saving grace for Ukraine right now is that 
one, there's talk of giving them another $60 billion in Congress, and it's being packaged together with $41 billion in aid to Israel to hopefully get through, hopefully for if you're a warmonger. So they have that as a saving grace. That's not a guarantee, though. But what they also have is the more close-to-home reality of winter. Winter is coming, and that just might save them a couple and buy them a couple months of time. Because with winter over there, we saw it last year, when the winter comes around, it gets really, really muddy. It's the muddy season. And the rains, because the, the, the rains will cause the mud, and the soil is very deep, so the mud is also very deep. And But once winter comes, offensive operations, they'll be bogged down for the next few months, at least until April. So they'll have a good six months, maybe, because I, I, winter begins when it gets cold and obviously it gets cold over there faster but when the rains come in that's when you start to get bogged down then you have to wait for the ground to harden again before you can do real offensive operations uh and that's the saving grace for ukraine they they'll get about five to six months of peace once the rains start to really fall in ukraine but what happens then because the war is not going to stop just just because the rain comes. The war is not going to stop when the ground hardens either. When the ground hardens, what happens then? When the Russians are able to move again and the Ukrainians have to fight again. What happens? No one knows. And with a new war in Israel starting, no one seems to care. But I don't think we'll be waiting too long for the answer, though. Like I said earlier, when that when that ground hardens and Russia starts to put pressure on that bubble from multiple sides, that bubble will pop. The backbreaker offensive is coming. Ukraine has Ukraine is on borrowed time. We'll put it that way. Ukraine is on borrowed time. This segment was taken from my podcast, This Week in Geopolitics. I have new episodes every Monday, so if you like what you heard, consider giving me a follow. Thanks for listening, and hopefully I'll see you next time. Servus.